Welcome to the Gospel Ministry of Exchange Church. Thank you for connecting with us for our Bible talk today, and please feel free to share these talks with others as well. It's our desire to connect people to Jesus and grow people in Jesus. To find out more about us, please visit our website, www.exchangechurch.org.au. We're currently in the book of Revelation, a very challenging book, a very mysterious book. Um, some people thought, are you crazy going through the book? No, no, it's God's Word. We want to we read it. We actually understand what, as best we can. We're not going to fully understand it, but we want to see what's happening in there and uh, allow God to speak to us as we um, open up our hearts and minds and see Spirit bring that Word alive in our hearts. I want to thank um, Ruth. So we're in chapter 15. It's part of where we are today. We're doing chapters 15, 16, 17 and 18. You think, are we going to be here all day? No, no, I'm not going to be here all day. No, 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 not at all. We're just going to take a sort of a larger picture of it and bring that together. Just to get us going, um, uh, how do you see God? How do you see God? Is he all love, mercy and grace to you? Is that only the way you see God? Do you attempt to know all of God? Are you open to knowing who God is. Not that we'll ever know all of God, it's impossible because He's infinite, but do you attempt to know all of God? Uh, in a C.S. Lewis classic, he begins to show us an element of God that we must see. Uh, C.S. Lewis writes in his classic there, The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe. Has anybody seen that? Probably seen a number of heads nodding out there. Great film, great classic. Uh, where Mr. Beaver tells Susan that Aslan, who is the ruler of Narnia, and Aslan is depicted as God, uh, that Aslan, the ruler of Narnia, is a great lion. Susan is surprised since she assumed Aslan was a man. She then tells Mr. Beaver, I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. She asks Mr. Beaver if Aslan is safe, to which Mr. Beaver replies, safe? Who said anything about being safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king. Why would he not be safe? Open your Bibles up. Uh, Revelation, we're going to go back to 14, read a couple of verses out of there, just a few little snippets to open us up where we're going to go to. So chapter 14, and I'll read verses uh, 9 through to 11. And I'll follow on with some more from that. Verse 9, And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. And they have no rest day or night. These worshippers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. Across to chapter 16, verse 1. Oh, sorry, no, 14, 19 to 20. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. 16.1. 1. 
Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. And now down to 19 and 20 in chapter 16. The great city was split into three parts and the cities of the nations fell and God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. And every island fled away, and no mountains were to be found. Uh, Lord, thank you. Thank you today that you've given us the book of Revelation. As much as we cannot grasp and perhaps understand fully what's taking place here, there's more than enough for us to see who you are. Uh, We ask, Holy Spirit, as we come now and look over these perhaps disturbing and challenging chapters, we ask, please, uh, open up to us the greatness and the glory of a holy God, a just God, a righteous God, a wonderful God. Please help us now, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, They are disturbing passages of the Bible to read through when you read that sort of stuff. Uh, Chapters 15 to 18 have what we call the current judgments and the final judgments of God being revealed to the world. Uh, And as we've seen through the pattern of Revelation, there's this circular pattern of coming back to similar thoughts and similar themes. We've actually already spoken through seven seals and seven trumpets. And if you had read through chapters 15 through 18, you actually see there there's now seven bowls. So this number seven means complete or perfect. So it's, it's the perfect judgment of God. It's the complete judgment of God. Now the seven seals, the seven trumpets and the seven bowls aren't separate judgments. They're actually all one of the same judgments but they're looked at from different perspectives by John. He keeps coming back to it like three times through this book. Uh, They're not three judgments, they're actually one judgment looked at from different angles as John begins to open that up for us. And and as we've shown before, these judgments of God uh, in some ways are already happening in the world. The stuff we're actually experiencing through disease and famine and natural catastrophe and sort of rebellion against God and all sorts of evil, that those judgments are already actually unfolding in some way in the world presently. God actually is giving up people to uh, live sinful, reckless lives and their, and their debauched lifestyles that come with that and then reaping the consequences of those choices that they make. If you go and choose to live this wild life and just live as a reckless rebel, well then you'll get those consequences probably like some of those gang members up in Western Sydney at the moment getting shot about every second night presently. You, you choose that lifestyle, the consequences come with that. Now, we also believe that there'll be an intensification of these judgments uh, as we approach the final years, months, days, weeks before the return of Christ. We think there'll be actually a, a lifting of this intensification of these judgments. It may be mild now, but we think and believe that it'll get worse and more intense as we draw closer. Things won't get better, things will get worse in that respect. Now again with the book of Revelation there, if you've read through those chapters, uh, there's a whole lot of detail there with what we call apocalyptic literature or language and that we can't quite possibly say with certainty what all that means right down to the last detail. You just can't see that because we've lost a grasp of what that apocalyptic language looks like. But we can actually see it's very symbolic to try and heighten our awareness of things that will happen in the future. So I'm not going to attempt today to work through every verse of chapters 15, 16, 17 and 18. 
Uh, not in detail, but we're going to sort of come with a, with a bigger picture overall. But what I will give you is some summary statements so that actually help perhaps summarise each chapter and that'll lead us up to... So chapter 15, and we'll put the summary statement up there for you as well. Chapter 15 is a picture of the sovereign supremacy of God. He stands over all things and has no rivals. Uh, we see in the Song of Moses in 15.3 that Ruth said before, it's got there, Lord God Almighty, King of the Nations. And in chapter 15, God is saying justice is coming. Revelation 16, next chapter, uh, summarising that, it's the seven bowls of God's wrath poured out upon stubborn rebels who resist their Creator. Chapter 16 just unpacks these bowls of judgment um, as God's wrath is poured out upon these people who resist and rebel against God. Revelation 17, uh, this is judgment on Rome and the Roman Empire. Uh, Rome is, uh, indulges in worldly, godless sensuality. They make war on Jesus and his followers, yet Jesus the Lamb conquers and defeats them in Revelation 17, 14. You actually see that. So there's a picture here of Rome and the Roman Empire living this godless life of sensuality. 17 and 18 are really probably an opening up of 16, uh, another way of um, saying that as well. Uh, Revelation 18 is this. Uh, Revelation 18, you'll see perhaps in your Bible, it's got sort of different um, italic sort of words in there. Is that, that's actually a song. It's a song. It's a song of lament uh, for the destruction of Rome, which represents the ungodly world system of life and belief. All of its luxurious opulence, talking Rome, or the world gained ruthlessly and unjustly through brutalising people for selfish gain has been judged. If you read through chapter 18, you'll see that. It's all this um, opulence and sensuality and indulgence gained by actually crushing people and dehumanising people. God's judging it. God's judging it. Now, if you read through these chapters, they're meant to strike us like a thunderbolt. If you stop and actually read through these chapters and just to take the time to go through them slowly, they're meant to strike us like a thunderbolt when the thunder roar, uh, roars in the night sky above us. And you know when you hear that thunder, you momentarily sort of freeze, don't you, when, it, when it's really loud and it's really close. And you can nearly feel some of your breath taken away when it just, just roars above you. Well, there's a sense here, this is what these chapters should do if we stop and slowly read through them and actually try and see what's going on here. Now, now depending on your perspective of God, which is where I asked those questions early on, this may feel very uncomfortable to you when you read this, when you read this sort of language here that God has actually ordained. In fact, all of us should feel a bit uncomfortable as we read these chapters. It should actually disturb us to some sense. We should feel a sense of the fear of God here as we read this word. As you read his word for us, there should be a sense of a, a holy fear of God upon us. And this is where I want to go today as we think about these chapters. It's about the righteous anger and the judgment of God. Probably something we don't talk about too often or think about, but it's really, really important because it's right here. And we're called to read this and grasp it. Okay, I think a significant portion of Western Christianity... Uh, we have a God who is way too small. We've got a diminished God. We've got a cut-down view of who God is. 
to the point where we've nearly actually cut down God to suit our imagination so that we can quite neatly just fit him into the back pocket of our lives and just pull him out when we need him sometimes. You know, when I get in a bit of trouble and I've got a bit of challenge in my life, I'll just pull God out and say, God, can you help me get through this trial and help me get through the, you know, the next little thing I'm going through? And then we just sort of put him back away again. But there's other aspects to God that we don't either believe in or we just don't want to talk about or we just don't want to think about. We, we like the good stuff and it's all good about God, so we've got to be careful how I use that word there. Maybe the nice stuff for us. But there's other stuff we've got to think about who God is. We don't want to think about a God who is rightly angry. We don't want to think about that. We just want to think about perhaps a God in his love and his mercy and his kindness and grace, which are all wonderful and which are totally and completely true. No one's, I'm never ever going to walk, they are fantastic and I worship God for that. But when it comes to God's justice and the right anger of God, it's like we stop. I can't, I can't come at that. I can't actually get to that. Now, maybe, maybe uh, we stop because we've seen the uncontrolled rage of a person who causes massive violence and physical harm and emotional hurt uh, just in trying to get their own way and they just fly into an uncontrolled rage and maybe you've experienced that and that's the only way you can perhaps see anger or you can see this sort of, you know, uh, emotional outburst. And I get that. I get that. If that's what you've experienced, that is sinful rage, when it's uncontrolled and unrestrained and just causing physical violence and harm left, right and centre, that is evil, uh, it's destructive and it's frightening. And, and for anybody who's experienced that, uh, I feel for you, it's devastating to go through that. But that isn't the anger that God has. That's not the anger of who God is. God is completely balanced in every possible way. And his anger is in a controlled fashion that is absolutely fitting and right for the occasion where that anger needs to come out. God has this right measured anger that is perfectly correct against all moral evil. And anger towards moral evil is right. It is right. It's the correct response to injustice when we see that take place around about us. Tell me this, how would you respond or feel about these examples as I read them out for you now? Just say this happens. A man breaks into an elderly lady's home who's living alone in a house to steal all of her precious possessions that she's collected and accumulated over her lifetime. While he's there to steal these possessions, this man beats her up and then he rapes her as well, leaving her to suffer alone. Or think of this. Another person, just say, abducts a three- or a four-year-old child from their parents' home while she's sleeping in her bed takes that child and then kills that child. And in both cases, in both cases, the criminals show no remorse. They show the, not even the least bit of conviction for what they've done. In fact, what they do, these two criminals who've committed these crimes, take photos of what they've done and brag to their friends about what they've done. 
How would you respond to that? Well, I think our initial response is compassion and empathy for the victims involved. Absolutely, we would feel that. But I think there'll be another response as well. How would you feel towards those people who committed those horrendous crimes? How would you feel about that? I think we'd have a sense of anger, wouldn't we? We'd be angry that someone would go and do that. How could you dare go and inflict that harm and that hurt on someone else so defenceless and so innocent? How dare you do that? You actually have a sense of anger that would rise up on the inside. Isn't that right? Isn't it right that we actually should get angry towards something like that? Think about the Ukraine war at the moment. Think of the war crimes that we've seen committed over there. There's a sense of anger inside of it. How can you just go into this country and invade and kill these civilians on the streets and just let them lie there? There's a sense of anger that's on the inside. And you think, that's right. We should be angry about that. We can't sit there unemotionless about that and just let that pass by without feeling something towards that. Well, this is the anger that God feels. It's a right anger. And I say it's similar because God's anger is perfectly balanced, whereas our anger is broken and we get lots of unrestrained and uncontrolled emotions get in there, but God's not like that, perfectly in control. You see, we may be uncomfortable about God's anger, but maybe that's because we're taking too small a view of who God is. Maybe we've just tried to cut down or cut out this righteous anger of who God is. We, we, just, we don't want to see that, but we can't do that because God's anger is right. Just, that's not the God of the Bible, a God who doesn't have an anger towards moral evil. A good, loving, holy God must be a righteously angry God as well, must be at the very same time. Here's another reason why we feel uncomfortable about God's righteous anger and his justice. It's not only that we see God as too small, but I think it's this. We also see our sin as too small a thing as well. We just see it as something we can just brush under the carpet. It's nothing. Western Christianity has lost the concept, I believe, of what the moral outrage of sin is. A lot of it has just lost this concept of the depth of sin. What's lying? Lying is now called bending the truth. I'm not lying, I'm actually sort of just slightly bending the truth. Or adultery, well, it's just really an extramarital affair. We sort of just tone these things down. We actually lose the the weight of what we've done. What we've lost is, is the exceedingly sinfulness of sin, of just how desperately bad it is. We, we, we think sin is just perhaps being a little bit naughty and not really, you know, that bad after all. Underneath that person's a good person, really. They're just a little bit naughty. They're just not that bad. Now, I don't know how many times you'll see that um, when you watch the news and someone goes to court and they've done all these horrendous crimes and the mother or the father's at the front. If only you knew my son, he's really a good person deep down inside. Well, forget the fact that he's gone and burgled about 50 houses over the last two months and that's what they try and they just cover over it. We've lost the sight of how, how this is and we don't want to say, look, use too sinful a word because that might hurt their self-esteem or that might actually, you know, hurt their feelings. No, we have to be honest. We have to be real. 
You see, we're okay with saying that rape or murder is a terrible thing to commit. Oh, that's bad, that's shocking, that's just that you need to go to prison because of that. But at the same time, we're sort of okay with saying, well, we can cheat a little bit on our declared income at tax time. That's, a, that's sort of okay to do that. Well, that's how we think sometimes. Or we're okay with selling something and not telling the buyer the full condition of it. We know there's some stuff wrong with the vehicle or whatever it is, but we don't tell them the full condition. We just give it to them as is, and once it's gone, it's gone. It's the concrete guarantee. Once it leaves the concrete, it's all yours, so to speak. Now, there's obviously different consequences that comes with both of those circumstances, but they are both equally sinful before God. Whether you, someone's raped or murdered or whether someone actually is cheating on their tax or not being upfront about when they're selling stuff. It's sinful before God. Different consequences now here on earth, but sinful before God. You see, we've lost sight of what it is that we are sinning directly against God, our Creator. We've lost actually sight that that's what we're doing when we do that. Who are we? We are people created in the image of God. We reflect, the. we are image bearers. We carry the image of God stamped upon our very souls. So in the case of when we're lying, what are we doing? We're actually scarring that image. We're doing damage to the image of God stamped upon our lives. God calls us to be honest. Honest in everything we do. Whether I'm selling something on Facebook or my tax return or whatever, God's calling me to be honest, to reflect His image in every aspect of my life. So that when we lie... It's like we're taking a knife, as it were, and we're beginning to slash at God's image stamped upon our lives. We're defacing it by our character, by our conduct. We are sinning directly against God. We actually are corrupting it even further. Think about Joseph uh, when, back in Egypt, um, the son of Jacob. Now, being seduced by Potiphar's wife, he replies to her as she's actually alluring him to have sex with her on, on, in that scene and he says to her, how could I do such a thing and sin against God? Joseph knew exactly what was happening by him actually going against and, and carrying out that unruly character. He said, I'm sinning against God. You see, we don't see the enormity of our sin. We don't see that. We don't see the height of our evil in the face of a good, holy and just creator. We, we just think it's naughty stuff. It's not actually slashing at the image of God stamped upon our souls. And we think what we're doing is not as bad as that person over there. I'm not as bad as that person. And we begin to compare ourselves. And again, we just start lowering down how sinful sin really is. Or in the case of perhaps some other people, God doesn't even come into the picture of some people's lives. I do what I like, when I like and how I like. No one tells me how to live my life. Now that is the height of evil. But it also shows the state of sin's blindness upon us as well. Have a look at what uh, John says here in John chapter 3 verses 19 and 20. Let's talk about this light and dark here. And this is the judgment... The light has come into the world, Jesus the truth, and the people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things, 
cheating on the tax return, not being truthful when we sell stuff on Facebook, for everyone who does wicked things, hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. So for those who've got no light of God in their conscience at all, or blacked it out, they don't want the light. I don't want the good stuff. I don't want to hear about that. It just exposes my sinfulness, just exposes my wickedness. Sin's blindness. What about this? Somebody who lives their whole life without getting into any real trouble with the civil law, they're just a law-abiding citizen, living, you know, Jane citizen or Sam citizen, lives in wherever, just playing their part in the community, but that person, Jane citizen, Sam citizen, never gives God the time of day. They're not really a bad person in the sense of the way the community looks at them, but they never once thank God for the ability to breathe or have a beating heart. God just does not come into their framework of view to see that. They have not one bit of feeling for the fact that God sent his only son to the world, Jesus, to die on the cross. They don't even think about it and they're just living on our streets around about us, these sort of people. What's that when you think about it? That's evil. That's evil. That's an unthankful, hard-hearted person. Think of it like this. Think of like you've um, invited someone to live in your home all their life. You feed them. You clothe them. You pay all their bills. You fix up all their medical costs. You cook them a meal. You place it on the table. This person comes in and grabs the plate, walks back to their bedroom and eats on their own. They get all their dirty washing and they just throw it out on the hallway. And you're probably thinking of some of your kids now, aren't you? Somebody like this. They throw all their washing in, on the, in, the, in the hallway and not one word's ever spoken between you and the person you've invited into your home. And this goes on for decades and decades and decades and decades. You keep feeding them, you keep clothing them, you keep paying their bills, you keep putting fuel in their car, you keep doing everything for them, but they never actually say one word to you for decades and decades and decades and decades. What would you say about that? That's unthankful, that's wrong, that's evil. How can you do that when somebody provides everything for you, you give them no thanks? Well, it's no different to Sam and Jane Citizen who live in our streets, who just live life and and take everything that God gives to them but never, ever give thanks to him. That's evil. Now, you see, if we don't think that, that it's evil, that's because we haven't seen the moral holiness and the purity of God in its true light. We haven't seen that. And none of us do truly see it here on this side of eternity. But the more we do get a picture and a vision of that, the more we actually see how evil and sinful the world is and how sinful we can be at times as well. We see sin as too small a thing And then we don't get God's justice. It's just too small. We haven't seen it for what it is. A God of love, which he is, loves holiness, loves justice, loves righteousness, loves purity. He delights in it and he sees a perfect world filled with that. So therefore, a loving God must deal correctly and rightly then with moral evil as it invades his kingdom. What is God's justice? It is his response to the moral choices that we all make each and every day. 
You refuse to acknowledge me as your creator and life giver. You don't want, to, you don't want me in truth to be involved in your life. You're happy to take the good things, but you're not happy to take me as, a, as your God. You don't want to live life according to the commandments or the way I lay down for my created people to live. You don't want to do that. Well, then God says, I'll give you what you want. You'll be totally separated from me. You'll be cut off from me. You don't want me, you won't have me. You will spend an eternity away from me. You'll experience in that eternity my right anger and justice for all of your crimes against me. And that's right. It's not wrong. We've got no argument against that. So what's John doing here as we think about God's justice, God's anger? Well, this is what John's trying to show us here, here in Revelation. He's warning us and revealing to us a big, a big, sovereign, just and holy God, a gloriously loving God and merciful God as well. Come back to Revelation chapter 15 where Ruth read for us before and we see it right there in the song that Moses sings. Let's have a look at that together now. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Okay, there's sovereignty right there. That's what John's trying to tell us. Who is God? He's the Lord God Almighty. Move on. He's telling us something about God next. Just and true are your ways. He's sovereign and he's just and he's true. Move on, O King of the Nations. In case you didn't quite get it the first time around, King of the Nations, He is the ruler. Not the beast, not the President of the United States, not the President of Russia. It's the King of the Nations. It's God. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy, utterly separated from all that is evil and corrupt. John's showing us this picture here of who this great, awesome God is. All nations will come and worship you for your righteous acts, a righteous God, have been revealed. Can you see what John's doing there as he, as he gives this song of Moses out? You are sovereign. There's a whole lot of evil happening around about me and I'm getting persecuted, particularly the people in this day. It's crushing us, but John's reminding, God is sovereign. He's the king of the nations. He is just. He is holy. And this is what we've got to see about God as we actually look into this world where we live because it's really, in many respects, not a lot different than what it was 2,000 years ago when they were in, the, in this particular time. And look at this question here in verse 4. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? It's like, how could you be so silly not to fear the Lord and to glorify his name? Who would actually turn their back upon this great, glorious God? But people do. Have a look in uh, Revelation 16:9. It says here, as these um, bowls are being poured out, this judgment's happening, uh, they were scorched by the fierce heat, and they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues, and they did not repent and give him glory. They still don't want God, even though he's actually warning them with this plague. 16, 10 and 11, just following on, the last part of verse 10 says this, 
people gnawed their tongues in anguish, again, um, under the, the judgment of God, and at the same time, they cursed the God of heavens, of the heaven, for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. They still are cursing God. They are still defying Him, even though God is pouring out His judgments upon them. Revelation 17, 14. Uh, this is crazy. They will make war on the Lamb, and the Lamb will conquer them, for He is the Lord of lords and King of kings, and those with Him are called chosen and faithful. Is that not the height of madness? In a sense, they recognise who God is, but they actually want to come together and make war on God. Now, that's ridiculous. It just shows you the madness of what sin has done to blind their rationale to think that they can somehow take on God. That's what they're doing there. That's a sin-hardened heart. So, what does God do? He unleashes all of his right anger and justice upon them. They are defying him. They are defying him at every turn. Some of those judgments are now and some of those judgments are reserved for the final weeks, months, days to come. God is perfectly right and just in all that he does. He does no wrong. So let's think about that today. It's, it's all there. It's, it's, this is not me making this up. This is actually written there for us. What are these judgments? As we read them today, what are, I, I believe that they're warnings now for us to take on board of God's holy justice to come. It's meant to serve there to warn us. And this is the very reason that we're reading it today because we actually want to know what's happening. We actually want to know what's happening now and what's going to happen in the future as well. It's a warning for us. Here's what Craig Costa wrote, as I read earlier this week in looking through the, um, the commentaries. He wrote this. So why repeat the ominous plague visions? These scenarios are not simple descriptions of future events, but warnings that are designed to move the readers of Revelation, that's you and I if we've been reading through it, to move the readers of Revelation to repentance and renewed commitment to the ways of God and the Lamb. That's what it's here for. It's here to warn us. It's here to put a godly fear into our hearts and lives, not to take this world blasé-like. So how would we issue that warning today? Well, if you're not following Jesus today, we urge you, we plead with you, repent change your ways, turn around. It's crystal clear here what's going to happen. The urging here is you need to change your ways. You need to turn up away from sin and you need to turn towards God. That's the simple call here if you're not walking with Jesus. You need to repent. Why? Because God's judgment will fall on all those who will not put their trust in Christ. God's judgment will fall on all those who continue to live in defiance of who he is. Jesus has taken God's judgment for us at Calvary. He has gone to that cross and he has taken God's wrath upon himself in our place. That's why John is urging us here to repent, to turn from our wicked ways 
and to turn towards the God who so lovingly cares for us and so much so that he sent Jesus to do that. Turn to Christ and run from the wrath to come. Now that's not fairy tale language, guys. That is real. Flee the wrath to come because it is coming. Don't look back. Don't consider what the world has to offer. You run to Christ and you run away from sin. Secondly, if you're following Jesus, as Craig Costa says there, go deeper in renewed commitment. Go deeper in the gospel. Separate yourself from this world. Don't be drawn back into what it's doing and how it does that. Look here in Revelation 18.4, we actually see a picture of that. Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. Come out, John says. This coming out of her is referring to come out of Rome, but actually Rome is in reference to the world system we live in. Come out of this world. John's whole message in Revelation is, is, is that the world represents this deceptive, ungodly system of life and belief. The world represents a place of deception where it's deceiving us. It's a place that lulls us into sleepiness regarding the final judgment of God to come. This world just never talks about it. You don't see the final judgment of God on the news at night, do you? You never hear that. It just keeps us away from that, deceptively all the time. What's the world do instead? It calls us to put our affections towards all its pleasure and leisure that it can offer us, telling us this is where life is meant to be found. You just come our way. We'll show you where life's to be found. It's a slow deceptiveness that the world slowly permeates through our whole lives. I was really encouraged by Emily's um, interview last week where she mentioned that, you know, her daughter Layla is coming home from four-year-old kinder and she's already getting some ungodly ideas at four-year-old kinder. It just shows you how deceptively, how early in life it begins to indoctrinate us and begin to change the way we think. It's like it just starts to creep into every area of our life and it's changing and shaping the way we think and act. And all of it with an ungodly attitude. John says, separate come out don't buy into it now he's not saying outright retreat live in the hills bake your own bread and make your own clothes he's not saying that we're not called to do that and go live in a cave somewhere just don't be deceived by the slow creep that this world millimeter by millimeter just keeps moving into our lives come out come away Here's an example of perhaps that slow creep. Sport is a great thing if your kids are into it. All of our kids have been into it. We've thoroughly enjoyed it. It's been a great mission field for us. But watch it. Watch it when they want to play sport on Sunday. When we want to go and gather with God's people, all of a sudden the sporting competitions want to shift their competition to a Sunday. You're faced with a decision. What do I do? Your kids love sport. But it's now on Sunday morning when we're gathering with God's people. There's nothing wrong with sport, but it's the slow creep of now it's beginning to invade my life and actually cause me challenges. What am I going to do? Well, if you choose to play regular sport on a Sunday, note the word regular, 
If you choose to do that, well, you're probably sending a message to your kids. We probably value sport higher than we value gathering with God's people on a Sunday. It's a slow creep. And, the more, and as we begin to move away from gathering with God's people, it has a flow-on effect of us losing intensity of who Jesus is in our lives. It's just this slow creep that comes into our lives. John's saying, come away. Step out of that. Keep a watchful eye on what the world is doing and don't follow their ungodly ways. Go deeper in the gospel. Allow the person in the presence of Christ to fill our hearts and lives, to give us that discernment so we don't get drawn into the creep of this world as it tries to permeate through our lives. God's justice and judgment is a very powerful doctrine that we, that we need to be grounded in. We need to be grounded in. We need to see God as an immeasurable, sovereign, holy being who's an important factor, uh, as an important factor in us living holy lives, seeing how great and glorious and holy God is. We've got to see God as tremendously huge, way bigger than we could ever imagine, not just let his words just sort of just glance off the pages for us, but actually let it sink in and grow God in our hearts and lives. And as I say today, unfortunately in Western Christianity, in many respects, we've lost sight of this doctrine of God's right anger and right justice. We've cut down God in size, put him in our back pocket, and we've actually diminished sin as well to fit in there too. And that is all to our detriment. And that is all Satan's work to try and just get these things out of our minds when we need to see them. Who is the God that you've seen? Have you cut down God to suit your own imagination or your own lifestyle? Do you just pull him out only when you need him? And then some hard stuff comes in life that you don't really want to know about God, you just you put him away again. You just poke him in your back pocket. Have you avoided the sobering truth of God's justice and right anger towards sin because you just don't want to think about that? Have you avoided that? Maybe you've avoided God altogether. Susan asked Mr. Beaver, is God safe? God is only safe in Jesus Christ. If you are outside of Jesus Christ, God will not be safe towards you. You are in a serious position of trouble outside of Christ in facing God. You must consider these questions seriously today. Why? Because your eternity hangs on it. Don't just think for the moment, live for the moment. Think big. Think real big. Think about God who gives me life and breath. Think about one day I'm going to stand before him. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning and uh, Lord, we see this glorious picture, this mighty picture a disturbing picture, but a right picture, a true picture. Lord, we see your judgment and your justice. We see your anger, Lord, which is right. Today, Lord, we also know that we sit here today with layers of blindness upon us. It's our own brokenness. 
It's the world we live in that doesn't want, to see, doesn't want us to see the full picture of who you are. Holy Spirit, I'm asking this morning, please, would you open up our eyes to see this sobering picture, yet glorious picture of a just God. A God who's rightly angry to moral evil. I would pray in that, Lord, you would open our eyes up to see the wonders and the mystery of Calvary that Jesus would come and he would take my place on that cross and he would bear God's wrath in my place. He would take the full force of God's righteous anger directed towards my sinfulness in my place. Would you open our eyes up to see that so that we get a complete picture of who you are, Lord, today? Lord, for those who are sitting in front of me who've never, ever closed with you, God, I pray today, please use my weak efforts now to open their hearts up to see a glorious, sovereign, holy, just God. Lord, today I do ask and I do pray, Lord, this in your name, Jesus, and for your glory alone and for the good of these souls that are before me. In Jesus' name, amen. We trust you have enjoyed our Bible talk from today. If you have any questions or comments from today's talk, please feel free to contact us at info at exchangechurch.org.au. Also, we love to welcome new people at Exchange Church in person, so consider yourself invited to be with us.